0: Grace and peace to you from our triune God. Amen. We're all a part of a culture that has seems to have this obsession with death. Some people have a fascination with it. Others try to avoid it uh, altogether, and still others do all they can to stop life's movement towards it. It seems like we can hardly turn on the TV or see a movie without witnessing attempts at dealing with this problem of death. There are countless movies about vampires, Um, those more or less immortal creatures that prey on the living and how we can stop them. There are countless others about finding immortal life, whether it's by finding the fountain of youth or um, other mystical means Hollywood knows that we're obsessed with our own mortality, and so they cash in on it. A lot of our movies are devoted to it. The way we interact with death in the real world is also telling, I think. We tend to wall ourselves off from it, don't we? Hospitals, for some pretty good reasons, mind you, separate patients from visitors. The more serious the condition of the patient, the less access non-medical personnel have to the patients. A lot of this is done for the well-being of the patient so that they can hopefully make a full recovery without the introduction of other germs and um, uh, contaminations, contagions. Um, but a lot of this is also done for the well-being of others. They want to contain any contagions that uh, the general public Uh, might be subjected to so that the general public can remain healthy. It all makes sense, but it also disconnects all of us from the processes of death. We don't witness death and the effects that it has, and so it tends to become an unknown terror to us. And after death, we then rely on professional embalmers who work with the body to make it look like the deceased person is asleep rather than dead. I think that even the way we talk about death shows our discomfort with it. We use euphemisms like rest and sleep without really considering their meaning for the end of life. And so maybe all of this stems from our struggles with this life itself. Most of us can point to seasons in life that have been, or maybe still are, incredibly difficult. Maybe your body doesn't function like it once did, or like you know that it probably should. Maybe simply moving about can be painful. Maybe you struggle with anxiety or depression or the other invisible painful aspects of our bodies, And simply getting out of bed in the morning is uh, the biggest victory of the day. All of this can make life a struggle, and we know it. And so the resurrection, it might seem, doesn't really make much sense. It It might not give us much hope. The Corinthians certainly struggled with it. For them, as with us, it might have been a source of embarrassment especially in light of the beliefs of the surrounding culture they might be they'd be the laughing stock of their friends and their neighbors if they'd actually believe that a man had been raised from the dead let alone believing that they would be too people don't rise from the dead or so society around us would have us believe and if our bodies themselves are the source of pain and suffering, we might be tempted to sidestep the resurrection altogether. A resurrected body doesn't necessarily have a whole lot of appeal if it's remotely like our current bodies that struggle through this life. And so we might be tempted to over-spiritualize the resurrection We might join with some of the society around us and subscribe to a belief that our souls live on, but our bodies don't. It would certainly make life easier if that were the case, wouldn't it? But I still don't think that any of this would be a real source of hope for us if it were true. What would be the point of God putting on flesh and becoming one of us if our bodies and the material world around us were something from which we want to escape. There's a poem, it's an Easter poem, but I think it's relevant here, by by John Updike, and it's called The Seven Stanzas of Easter. And so I wanted to share it with you. Make no mistake, if he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecules reknit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. It was not as the flowers, each soft spring recurrent. It was not as his spirit in the mouths enfuddled, eyes of the eleven apostles. It was as his flesh, ours. The same hinged thumbs and toes, the same valved heart that pierced died, withered, paused, and then regathered out of enduring might, new strength to enclose. Let us not mock God with metaphor, analogy, sidestepping, transcendence, making of the event a parable, a sign painted in the faded credulity of earlier ages. Let us walk through the door. The stone is rolled back, not papier-mâché, not a stone in the story, but the vast rock of materiality that in the slow grinding of time will eclipse for each of us the wide light of day. And if we have an angel at the tomb, make it a real angel, weighty with Max Planck's quanta, vivid with hair, opaque in the dawn light, robed in real linen, spun on a definite loom. Let us not seek to make it less monstrous for our own convenience, our own sense of beauty. Lest, awakened in one unthinkable hour, we are embarrassed by the miracle and crushed by remonstrance. I think that there's a good reason that one of the church's biggest functions in this world is its ministry to the dying, to the dead, and to those who mourn the dead. Pastors offer pastoral care to those who need it to process through their mourning and offer the hope of the resurrection of the dead to those gathered. We always see a church family come together to comfort the family and loved ones with a meal and fellowship. It's easy to see the hope of the resurrection present in these moments. But we'd be doing ourselves in Christ's church a, a grave disservice if we only recognized the hope of the resurrection in moments of intense grief and pain. We see the resurrection in our everyday, ordinary lives. Despite the look of the world outside of our doors, those leafless trees standing stark against a typical Ohio gray sky we know that vibrant life will return. Deep hues of green and the leaves of the trees with birds in the branches singing their song of life. And this happens each and every spring. We witness signs of the resurrection, signs that point us to the resurrection. Seasons, season in and season out. I asked one of my colleagues and friends, Becky, what resurrection meant to her. And I wanted to share her response with you because it was just a beautiful response. And she said this, resurrection is the hope of everyday life as we deal with death in life, death in circumstances, and react with the ability to continue in God's beautiful way of recreating us as we live into the creation we are meant to be. And so I want to ask you, what creation are you meant to be? How is God recreating you to live? To live into what you are meant to be, to live into this resurrection hope that the worst thing is never the last thing, that love is and will always be stronger than death. All of our hope in life, in the life of Christ, is founded upon Christ's death and resurrection. Without Christ being born, dying, and rising again, we don't have hope. It was the hope in Christ's resurrection that has given countless Christians the hope to face martyrdom with resolve, confidence, and hope. Christ is for us the river by which we're planted, granting us life abundant as we drink of his life, love, and grace. Paul's arguments in our epistle lesson this morning admittedly sound almost coldly logical. But we need to not forget that it wasn't some logical argument that turned Paul from a persecutor of the church to the apostle to the Gentiles. It was a real encounter with the risen Christ that compelled him to preach and to teach the gospel of the risen Christ in love to all that he could. Part of that mission was to refute the objections and claims that run counter to the gospel. And so he addresses the Corinthians regarding the resurrection of the dead and the thrust of his argument that is, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then our faith, is dead. It's empty, worthless, and useless. And we have no hope but to remain in sin because the wages of sin are death. But because Christ has indeed risen from the dead, he is the first fruits of those who have died. And Paul's use of the term first fruits is crucial it tells us that the resurrection isn't a one-off, isolated event. We can place our firm trust and hope in our resurrection in Christ because Christ is but the first. He is the first fruit of the dead. He leads us to eternal life. And because of Christ, our whole lives, our whole selves, body, mind, and soul, are redeemed and will be resurrected in the end days we will be the same in some ways and, and different in others resurrection doesn't destroy us as beth feckler joan puts it we the people being redeemed by god are the same people we were when god began to work in our lives we are the same body and soul And God loves us and cares for us, body and soul, even as we are being made new. Because Christ put on our flesh and died our death, only to rise again, we live into the resurrection with our whole beings as we look with hope to our final redemption on the other side of eternity. Amen. Amen.